continuing this morning in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10, you will recall we looked last week at the most important question you could possibly ask, right? The most important question ever, which is this lawyer who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you'll remember we talked about how interesting that was that he worded that. Um, And this is the most important question. Now, we live, we continue to live. You you keep thinking any minute now, things are going to calm down and get back to normal, right? Uh, Well, well, so, right? You hope so. I, I was reading an article this past week, and they're thinking about putting a new word in the dictionary. Doom scrolling. Are you familiar with the term doom scrolling? No, I hope not. And by the way, I hope as I describe this that this doesn't describe any of you. Although you may discover as I go down through this that... uh, So here's what doom scrolling is. Doom scrolling is finding yourself at midnight, one in the morning, sitting there with your computer or your phone, scrolling through, oh, who knows what, Twitter, Instagram... If you're a real masochist, Facebook, and you're sitting there just kind of reading the news and doing, looking for hope, looking for some kind of answer, looking for some kind of peace, looking for something, since you're working on going to sleep, that will allow you to close your eyes with your head on your pillow and wonder and have some sense that maybe the world is still going to be here tomorrow and it's all going to be okay. But of course, what's going to happen is that as you continue to scroll, um, the fact that the world is in many ways actually okay, because the world really is in many ways actually okay, uh, we are continuing to do quite well, really, if you, yes, there's problems, there's difficulties, and there are people who, but, but you know, the world has always been a place Where? It's the best of times. It's the worst of times, right? Someone famous, as I recall, said that. That is often true and almost invariably always true. And if we're over here, and I hope this doesn't describe you, sitting there at one in the morning, going through some kind of internet thing, hoping to find, I don't know what, some answer? Someone who's going to say, all right, This is how it's all going to go. Let me predict the future for you. It's all going to turn out okay. You can go to sleep. Shut off the light. It's all going to be okay. Okay, if you're waiting to get that from, I don't know where you think you're going to get that, uh, except from the book that we are looking at this morning. In fact, you're going to do much better to stop going to your Twitter feed or where. Just if you have one, and I'm sure if you have an electronic device, you have a Bible in it. Shut that off and open your Bible up. Read the Psalms. Read one of the Gospels. Read your Bible. That will help you go to sleep and be at peace. And you will just, because what, what, the, what the whole internet is doing is they want you to click on their links. Well, you know, the fact that everything is fine, nobody clicks on that link. Everything's okay. You know, that is not a link that really gets clicked on much. The world is coming to an end. Okay, well, you know, well, a click on that. Oh, well, what do you mean? The world is coming to an end. And so when we start looking for peace, calmness, 
a sense that everything is going to be okay? Okay, that doesn't sell. No one is no one's buying that. But that the world is going to come to an end any minute now, and oh, by the way, this is what you better do to prepare yourself. Okay, that draws people. So that's what you're going to continuously get. You need to stop, stop. Read the news, it's okay. You want to know what's going on in the world. But stop looking for some kind of peace and security out there. It's not out there. It's in here. Your peace and security is going to come from the Spirit of God indwelling you, from the Word of God, and the most important thing that we can talk about and that we can communicate to our culture and our nation and our world is the passage that we're looking at this morning where the guy comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, that's the question that matters. We're now talking about eternity. We're not just talking about um, all the difficulties. Jesus says to his disciples, in the first century, 2,000 years ago, he says to them, um, you're going to be hearing about wars and rumors of wars. Don't be frightened. These things must take place. Even then, the end is not yet. Nation will, in fact, rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there will be famine and earthquakes. And all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs of the end of the world. Here we are. We're watching the birth pangs of the end of the world. Now, so, I mean, the world's going to end, you know, I, I don't know when the world's going to end. We may go another 500 years. I don't know. I, what I do know, we're one day closer to the day than we were yesterday. That I know. We kind of look at the world and think, just how much longer can we go like this? Uh, God is not quite so Amerocentric as we are. We could disappear off the face of the planet as a nation, and the, and the plan and kingdom of God could continue just rolling right along. Um, so what we need to realize, though, and Paul will write this to Timothy, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. We shouldn't be surprised by this. This should not take us by surprise. It shouldn't be like, oh, wow, wait a minute, I thought life was going to just be a breeze. Life is never going to be a breeze, right? Men will be lovers of cells, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Oh, they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid these people. That was all written in the first century, right? The nature of man has not changed. We need to look at our world with clear eyes and recognize we are all sinners and have been sinners since Adam. So we shouldn't expect the world to suddenly act like they're not the world. They are the world. Jesus says this in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, Believe in me, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And a few verses later, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We as believers should not be 
full of anxiety and worry and fear. We should be wise. We should be prudent. But we don't have to be terrified. What's the worst that could happen? You die, go to heaven. You know, I mean, come on. It's, it's, we need to get the eternal perspective here. Get the hundred-year plan. Do what's going to matter in a hundred years. And what's going to matter in a hundred years is that we were faithful. We spoke truth. We were kind. We were compassionate. We were ambassadors of reconciliation. So when we speak to the world... We're speaking about eternal life. That's the question that the guy comes to Jesus and asks him. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, that is, that is a much more important question than what is going to happen with the coronavirus. I don't know what's going to happen with it. Who knows? We'll find either a way to, to work to help it, those people who have it, to recover, which I think we're actually doing pretty well. We'll maybe come up with a vaccine. Maybe. I, I pray that we do. Uh, or who knows what, we'll just finally get to where everybody who's got immunity is still here and people who don't have immunity aren't here. And that is how things go. One way or the other, this event is going to, 10 years from now, just kind of like everything else that occurred 10 years ago, you just kind of move on. But eternity, eternal life, the question as to where your soul is going to spend eternity, that is a question that will last forever. And that is a much more important question than how long we're going to be in lockdown here or social distance or all of these other things that are, without a doubt, inconvenient and um, are, we should be prudent and wise. But eternal life, that's what really matters. So this passage, as we look at it, Uh, We're going to be looking at some more detail on this. So the guy says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And not to re-preach last week's sermon. You should listen to that if you haven't. It's an interesting question. It's not a term we use. You know, the only way to get an inheritance, first of all, is if the person who's giving the inheritance dies. That's generally how that works. And two, you have to be part of the family. Of course, Jesus as God actually did die, so that we could get the inheritance, and he welcomes us into the family. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. So that's great. Now, what it says here is that he asked this question to test Jesus. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Our initial reaction to this idea that he's testing Jesus is to kind of think, well, that doesn't sound real good. I mean, should we be putting Jesus to tests? I mean, remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil in the wilderness and the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, you jump off. And, you know, the scripture says that the angels will protect you so that you don't even dash your foot. And Jesus is like, you will not test or tempt the Lord your God. Well, okay, that is true. Don't test or tempt the Lord your God. But in this instance, I'm not sure the lawyer necessarily thinks Jesus is God. I don't, in fact, I'm quite sure he doesn't think that. So I don't think he sees it in that kind of a light. What instead he's doing here, and I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for us to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Remember this. We'll get to his actual motives here in a minute, but start by giving him the benefit of the doubt. Remember this. This is the first century. 
So there's no YouTube, right? There's no videos. There's no, has this guy actually heard Jesus preach a sermon? Maybe, but maybe not. You know, he probably was not there for the Sermon on the Mount. No one by this point in time has written any books. The Gospels are not written on the life of Jesus. So this guy is a lawyer of the Mosaic law. He is a guy who is an expert in the law of Moses. He holds a position as an expert in the law of Moses. He actually has a responsibility to do due diligence. Jesus has arrived, and without having gone through the system, the only thing Jesus has done thus far at the temple is shown up and overturned the money changers and driven everybody out of there with a whip. That's what Jesus has done at the temple. I mean, Jesus has not really gone through the whole system here. Jesus is kind of outside the system. So this guy has a responsibility as someone who has gone through the system. He is a a teacher of the law of God. He's got to come to Jesus, and it's perfectly responsible, in fact, for him to ask. He calls Jesus teacher, which is a term of great respect. This is a term that is, uh, this is also means master. This is someone who is a master of their material. Uh, you get your master degree, right? Your master's degree. That is a person who has mastered the, the stuff, the teacher. This is also the Greek rendition of the Hebrew word rabbi. Same, same word here. So when he's asking Jesus, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question, and in fact, he is asking Jesus a question that may end up with Jesus being completely condemned, depending on how Jesus answers this question. And this guy has, it's proper for him to ask this question. Deuteronomy 13, Law of Moses, which this guy is an expert in. Without a doubt, he knows Deuteronomy 13, probably has memorized it. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, if a prophet... Or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you signs and wonders. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, right? Here we have Jesus, who is clearly a prophet, who is clearly teaching and is performing signs and wonders. And this is the law of Moses, which this guy is an expert in. So if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises and gives you signs and wonders, and the signs and wonders come true concerning which he spoke to you, So, so far, we're looking at Jesus. Jesus has done signs and wonders, and they have come true. And now, here's the test. If he speaks to you, saying, let us go after other gods, whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you will not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That should sound familiar too, and we'll see in just a second. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet, or dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge evil from among you. This guy is a professor of the law of Moses. That's what he's an expert in. The law of Moses says if you have a prophet who shows up, who does signs and wonders, 
you better start asking him questions. Particularly if he starts telling you that you need to change the way you're going about serving God. Now, we look at the teaching of Jesus, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, and you look at that and you go, okay, that is exactly how the spirit of the law was obviously supposed to be given. But Jesus stands up and says, you have heard it said. You shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you hate your neighbor without a cause, you're guilty. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you. Okay, the very fact that it's like you've heard it said, but I say to you. All right, if you're a teacher of the law of Moses and you've got this passage and you're aware of this, this should cause your antenna to kind of go up. Okay, wait a minute. You're quoting the law of Moses and then you're telling us, but I say. It's, it's perfectly legitimate for this guy to come to Jesus and to ask him questions, remembering that this is probably his first physical, face-to-face, actual exposure to Jesus. He's, the teaching of Jesus is floating around. You can talk to people, but this is his actual opportunity to look Jesus in the face and ask him this question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, we'll see when we get to it that this lawyer does have his own set of issues. But it is proper and legitimate for one who is an expert in the law to ask Jesus this question. Are you a true prophet of Yahweh? Are you a prophet of the God whom we serve? Do you teach the way of Moses correctly? Or are you leading us astray? So Jesus had better answer this question right, right? I mean, sure. If Jesus answers this question wrong, well, then we have to put him to death. Now, of course, what's interesting, right, is that is, in fact, exactly what they will do. They will not deny that he does the miracles. What they'll do is they will ascribe the miracles that he does to Satan. That's what they'll end up doing. They will take his his holy, righteous, good works performed through the power of the Spirit of God, the casting out of demons, and the giving of sight to the blind, and the loosening of the tongue of the dumb, and the opening of the ears of the deaf, they will take those things and they will say, yeah, you just did those because you're empowered by Beelzebub. Which, of course, will bring them to the place where there is no more repentance. There is no more ability for them to come back to God because God has already given you all the signs necessary to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, and you took those signs and ascribed them to the devil. Okay, if you're going to take the works of the Holy Spirit and you're going to ascribe them to the devil, I mean, exactly what more do you expect God to do? What, what exactly more is there? You've already taken the very miracles of God, and now you ascribe them to the devil. This is, by the way, why this is called the unpardonable sin. Sorry, there's no more pardon available to you. It was your chance to repent, and you didn't take it. So Jesus, instead of getting into some kind of a lengthy argument with the guy, he just says, okay, um, what do you think? Now, the guy, by asking the question, he's asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? This implies an answer. Right? That you have to actually do something. We'll, we'll talk in a second as to whether or not you actually do have to do something. But there is a potential, there's an implicit right in that question, is that you've got to go out and do So Jesus just, just throws it back at him. You know, I mean, what do you think? 
And we, we, can't, we can't ascribe too many motives to the lawyer. What we're going to see is that when he, it all winds down, he will try to justify himself. But maybe he's just genuinely asking Jesus his opinion. Being who he is, it's probably most likely that he really wants to teach Jesus more than have Jesus teach him. So Jesus is like, let's just cut to the chase. I mean, what, exactly what is it you want to say here? What, how do you see it? Which is what Jesus says. What, what's written in the law? I mean, how do you read it? So he replies, well, okay, as I read the law, this is what it says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now this, by the way, is a great answer. This, this is a great answer. These, in fact, are the greatest commandments. Jesus will be asked in Matthew 22, he'll be asked the actual question, what is the greatest commandment? This is one of those things that if you live under the Mosaic Law, you sit around and discuss this kind of stuff, particularly if you're genuinely trying to live a life that's righteous. You're like, okay, what's the greatest commandment? So again, in Matthew 22, one of them, a lawyer, which is an expert in the law, asked Jesus a question, again testing him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And of course, Jesus' reply to that is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Do these two commandments and you'll have done it all. So the answer that the lawyer gives is in fact the correct answer. Jesus is not going to have any problem with this answer. This is a great answer. Paul will say in Romans chapter 13, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, and he's going to start listing the law, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Love will not do any wrong to your neighbor. So love is the fulfillment of the law. I mean, obviously, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to try to steal their spouse or steal their stuff. You're not going to try to murder them. You're not going to try to wreck their marriage or covet everything they've got and hate them. You're not going to do anything evil to your neighbor if you love your neighbor. That is the fulfilling of the law. Do for my neighbor what I'd like my neighbor to do for me. Be kind, be forgiving, be compassionate. If, if there's difficulty, be there to lend a hand if they want that. And, and just, that's the fulfilling of the law. So Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Just do this, and you will live. You're looking for eternal life? Seemingly, piece of cake, right? Sure, just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, come on, you know, how hard can that be? Oh, and by the way, love your neighbor just like you love yourself. Uh, you just pull that off, it's, it's all going to be good. You will recall that Jesus has been asked this question before. Uh, in Mark, we'll look at the account in Mark, although it occurs in Luke too. He was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him and knelt before him. I mean, he's so earnest, he actually kneels before Jesus and began asking him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is a different account than this lawyer. This is someone else. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Are you implying that I'm God? You know, that's, we're not going to go there, but that's 
an interesting exchange all of its own. And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, you know, the, the ten, right, the big ten. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Humble too. Yeah, what do you know? And looking at him, Jesus does feel a love for him. Jesus looks at him and says, apparently the guy has genuinely tried to do this. Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, all right, there is one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come and and follow me. I mean, if you really love your neighbor, let's, let's put that to the test. Let's see if you really love your neighbor like you love yourself. Sell everything you got and give it to the poor. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He owned a lot of property. Yeah, I mean, I love my neighbor, but come on, you know, not that much. I mean, let's be serious here. You want me to sell everything I own and give it to my neighbor? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I love my neighbor, but yeah. How much did Jesus love his neighbor? Jesus loved his neighbor so much that he died for us. And when he died, the only thing he owned was a coat, a robe. Nice robe, so nice they didn't want to cut it into four pieces. That's it. He didn't even own a a tomb to be buried in. Jesus so loved his neighbor. James says this. If you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you decide that you like some neighbors better than you like other neighbors, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, maybe you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder. Well, you're a transgressor of the law. This is the problem with the law. This is the curse of the law. This is what the law brings. This is when this, why this, when this guy runs up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you've got the law. What do you think? Oh, well, I think that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor like we love ourselves. And if we would just do that, then, then we would have eternal life. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. That's true. But can you actually do that? I mean, Jesus doesn't say that. We're, you know the account, right? And we're going to get next week to the Good Samaritan. But that's, that's where this is going to go. The guy is going to come up with, yeah, but who's my neighbor? See, and that's the problem. The moment you actually start trying to do this, you discover that it is, in fact, impossible. And then you get to the question of, well, what was the purpose of the law? Why exactly was the law given? The law was given for a specific reason. It made Israel a unique nation. But salvation? Okay, Abraham was saved long before Moses even showed up. About 500 years before Moses shows up. Before the Mosaic law even arrives in the world, Abraham is a righteous man. So is Isaac and Jacob and, you know, you just go down through, right? Righteous, without the law of Moses. The purpose of the 
Old Testament law was not to make you righteous before God. The whole sacrificial system was to drive you to the place where you realized that the only way I could effectively do this is if I literally lived here right next to the temple and proceeded to just slaughter every lamb, ox, and goat I own. Because I'm just sinful. I mean, how can I stop not coveting my neighbor's stuff? Who in the world doesn't drive by? Okay, the whole, you know, the TV, you know what that thing is? It's a covet box. The whole idea behind all of those commercials is to get you to look at that and go, ooh. I'd like that. And the whole point of advertising, by the way, the whole reason why Google and everybody else is keeping track of every website you've ever gone to is because they put them all together, not necessarily a human being, but there's someone who has written a program that puts that all together and they figured out that since you own A, B, C, D, E, and F, you're going to want G. Because pretty much everybody else out there owns all those, all want G. So next thing you know, you're getting this advertisement in front of you. Why? So that you will covet that. It's all built on. That's how it all works. That's who we are. And we need to wake up to this, and we do, and say, okay, righteousness does not come from me stopping being covetous. Righteousness comes from coming to God and saying, you know what, Lord? I have a heart that covets to the core of who I am. I need grace. I need mercy. I need forgiveness. That's what I need. I don't need to come to you and try to convince you about just what a great, wonderful person I am and how righteous I am. I need to come to you and say, Lord, do you have any mercy for me? Is there grace for me? Is there compassion? The sacrificial system did not save anybody. You can read any number of Old Testament passages, but let me just read one. Micah 6.6. 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? I mean, this is the most precious thing in all the world I own. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. I mean, would that appease God? Of course, the verse goes on, and we're all familiar with this. He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. That's what God wants. He doesn't want rivers of oil. He doesn't want, he doesn't want oceans of sacrifice and sacrificial blood. He doesn't, he doesn't want your firstborn given to the fire of Moloch. God just wants you to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly. Samuel will say to to Saul, "Do, do you think the Lord has as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience? God wants you to obey the voice of the Lord your God. Your multiple sacrifices are not going to get this job done. And there's, and you just go through the Old Testament, there's all kinds of passages out there. This is not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to point us to our need of the forgiveness of God. Now, what will happen to the law? Jesus will say in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't think I came to abolish the law, the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. I came to live the perfect life that no one else could live. I came so that I could live this righteous life and in my death, give it to you. We get the righteousness of Jesus. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, until it's all accomplished. And of course, Jesus did accomplish it. 
And in fact, it has passed away. The law has now passed away. The old covenant is now done. And now we're under the new covenant. And even under the old covenant, even under the law, you still weren't justified by the law. You were justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. This has always been the standard of justification, is by faith. So this exchange that Jesus has with this lawyer, it's actually quite complex. It looks straightforward. It's not straightforward. The lawyer is here trying to figure out if he could trap Jesus. Can he get Jesus to give an incorrect answer to this question? It's legitimate that he ask it. It's it's quite proper of him to try and to test a prophet, one who declares to be a prophet of God. But the fact is that Jesus just says to him, what, what do you think? Well, just keep the law perfectly. Okay, sure. You know what? If you could keep the law perfectly, that actually would save you. The problem, of course, is that you can't keep the law perfectly which is where this account is going to go, and we'll look at it more next week. Paul will lay all of this out in Romans. He will say this in Romans 9. What should we say then? The Gentiles, who, by the way, did not pursue righteousness, have actually attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Well, because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over this stumbling stone. Just as it was written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Those who believe in him will not be disappointed. But if you don't believe in him, you stumble over the life of Jesus. You don't, you don't get it. You don't understand it. It's not clear to you what Jesus is actually doing here and living this righteous life and Wait, I've got to work my way to heaven. Actually, you can't work your way to heaven. And Paul will go on in the next chapter in Romans 10 and say this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You'll stop even trying to use the law. Why? Among other things, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It never worked. It didn't work when Moses gave it. Righteousness didn't come from the law at the time Moses provided it. It did make Israel a unique nation. But it didn't make them... Righteous before God. That only came when they figured out that I I can't keep these Ten Commandments. How in the world am I going to love my neighbor like I love myself? They immediately should have concluded, this is is impossible. I need the grace of God. Hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yet, over and over and over, they don't. And this lawyer is another example of those who come to Jesus and who are trying to put forward their own self-righteousness, which Jesus allows him to do. Go ahead. What what do you think? Well, I think I should just love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I mean, can you seriously say that with a straight face and then go, yep, that's me. I mean, I love God. I love God a lot. I'm positive. All of you see that here love God a tremendous amount, but who in the world is going to really stand up there and say, yep, no doubt about it, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, it, on its face, it's like, oh, Lord, I, I'd like to do that. I wish I could do that. I pray that you give me the strength to do that, but who am I trying to kid? I can't do that, apart from the power of God. And even then, I... Even then, it's all God, not me. Certainly not me doing it. 
I love my neighbor like I love myself. I mean, I like my neighbors and all, but I, did you buy all your neighbors Christmas presents that were, you know, of equal value to the presents you bought yourself? I mean, who in the world does that? No one does that, right? I mean, we don't do that. Anybody ready to just sell everything they own and give it to the poor? Because what? Because you love your neighbor? Not so much. And that should drive us to God, to come to him and to say, Lord, I, I need your grace. And this is the message we need to bring our world. And it's important. They're going to mischaracterize us. They work hard at it. They lie about us. They work hard at it. They try to present us as angry, judgmental, um, condemning people. Well, by the way, let's make sure that's not actually us. There is sin out there for sure. Uh, and guess what? All of us are guilty of it. And so we come to our world and do your best to help them see that God is a God who forgives. After all, he forgave us. We're ambassadors of peace. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. We are those who strive to bring about peace with God. That's who we should be. Gentle, gracious, kind, as best we can. And pray that God give you that spirit as you interact with a increasingly hostile and angry and uh, seemingly out-to-get-us world. Um, thus it has ever been, by the way. Not unique. So just pray that God would give us all the wisdom we need to reach our world. They desperately need the message we have. Desperately. Let's pray. Lord, we watch our world unravel. We watch and read the headlines, and it seems like every day there's something new that as a tragedy or a challenge or a difficulty. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would find our strength and our peace in you, that our, we would not be troubled, that we would look to you for the strength we need, that we would sleep well at night knowing that you are still in control and still on the throne. May we be people who are pillars, who are rocks in a society that is just tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of difficulty and hardship. And, uh, Lord, they're like sheep, not a shepherd. May we speak words of the great shepherd to them. Help us, Lord, to be a balm to their soul and to speak truth, even though they may claim they don't want to hear it. May we kindly and graciously speak it anyway. And may we see your word go forth with power and carry out the things that you have determined it will accomplish. Use our lives, Lord. Make them matter for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name and his power.